You're listening to a Share Radio podcast. Good morning and welcome to the history of booms, busts and bubbles. I am Rita Lobo and you are listening to Share Radio. Today, China is one of the most powerful countries in the world. It boasts a strong economy and is a pivotal cog in the global system. But it wasn't always so. China was one of the world's poorest countries when the Communist Party came into power in 1949. Mao Zedong, its chairman and intellectual leader, is today remembered as a ruthless statesman and for the disastrous consequences of his cultural revolution. But at the start of his rule, at the head of the Communist Party, Mao's focus was mostly on the economy. I am joined by Professor Ian Inkster from SOAS to reflect on Mao's economic legacy and the role the controversial chairman still plays in the country's economic ideology. Decades of war and civil conflict had damaged the infrastructure and choked off a nascent industrial revolution. Professor Inkster, what was it like in China in 1949 before Mao rose to power? Clearly, China had had a long period of warfare and of civil strife. Um, it came out of the 18th and early 19th century with an agricultural sector that was not really containing the population. The population had doubled in the 18th century, which is a huge increase, very similar to what had happened in Britain, in, in Europe, in fact. And that doubling of the population put strains on the system. Um, the Western hadn't helped. They'd attacked China with the Opium Wars, wanting to open trade up and so on. Uh, a lot of the budget had had to be spent, therefore, on warfare. China, by the middle of the century, so the middle of the 19th century, was in a poor state. And from that point on, you start to get um, civil war and, and trouble in, in, within the economy. And you get, of course, the famous Daibing Rebellion. And, of course, the, the, the Westerners are willing to call that um, a rebellion. 20 million people died, probably, in that rebellion of the 1860s, 70s. That's the total um, deaths of the whole of the First World War. Right. So this is a massive inheritance. So by the time you get from the Taiping Rebellion into the late 19th century, China's being carved up by the West. The British are the, the greatest fault really there, led, leading the whole world in its, you know, with their commercial colonial power. And China, by the time you get into the, the 20th century, then is um, has collapsed. The imperial system has collapsed at the turn of the century, and China is now governed, if at all, by warlords. I mean, China has basically not got a central authority during the, uh, the early decades of the 20th century. And then when the, second world, when the First World War was over in 1919, uh, the Treaty of Versailles gives um, uh, the territory of China to the Japanese, who are seen as friends um, when the Germans lose. So German territory in the East is given to the Japanese away from China, and China is screwed. From the, from the 1920s and 30s, the chance of there being a central government that has a decent budget working for it in China is zero. And, and the so population the was still was still increasing at an alarming well, rate. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, poor countries do. I mean, you know, this is one of the problems, isn't it? Before the demographic transition, um, a poor country, as soon as in any region there's some good famines or income rises for any reason, it gets eaten away by a rising population because of rising birth rates. And so um, the population was large. It, it wasn't increasing to the same rate it was going to increase at. But you had probably by the time Mao came in in 1949, you probably had something in the order of um, half a billion people mm. in China. It's a big system. Um, so what was the actual, uh, the, the actual communist revolution like in China? 
Well, it wasn't, I mean, it was a long, drawn-out process. The whole battle between nationalism and communism was going on from the 1920s, 30s. Um, it was exacerbated and complicated by, by the Second World War, when, of course, China was being ripped to shreds by Japanese aggression, it has to be said, and at a time in which the Western powers didn't help at all. The Western powers were, before the Japanese entered the war in 1942, um, the Western powers were basically friendly to Japan, it has to be said. The British, again, leading that friendship. They saw Japan as a, a lovely little bastion of capitalism against uh, Soviet Russia and so on. So China was really on its own, um, fighting horrible frontiers, a massive civil war, um, and uh, so that by 1945, there was no real resolution of the Chinese position. Um, and between 1945, the end of the Second World War, and 1949, there's a lot of machinations going on in China. The nationalists are being pushed by the communists, even though the nationalists are being funded by the, British, by the Western world generally, and the Americans in particular. Um, the, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek are going to lose this battle, and they end up in Taiwan in 1948-49. They end up basically, well, they end up in Taiwan before that, but they end up sort of formally governing Taiwan from 1949, just as China take, uh, communism takes over China. So the, the background for 1949 is of basic misery um, of pockets of industrialization in places like Shanghai, dominated by Britain and British industrialization. Um, somewhere like Shanghai in 1925 would have looked like Manchester, you know, it would have literally it would have looked like something like Manchester. And people would have thought if they went to Shanghai, wow, you know, China's doing okay. But the rest of the economy is denuded of growth. You know, there's, um, there's poverty, there's low levels of um, agricultural production. People are working maybe 200 days a week, if they're, sorry, 200 days a year if they're lucky. Hmm. So, you know, because there's just simply not, not employment for them. So the whole situation is, is one of, 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 of a terrible nature. And I would have expected, you know, if you were a commentator in 1920, say, you would probably have expected China to remain like an in India uh, for the rest of um, two or three or four dec um, generations. The first five-year plan of the development of the national economy is a major step towards the realisation of the party's general line. The present national conference should discuss this draft plan conscientiously in the light of our practical experience so as to make it relatively sound in content and therefore workable. It is no easy job to build a socialist society in a large country like ours with its complicated conditions and formerly very backward economy. We may be able to build a socialist society over three five-year plans, but to build a strong, highly industrialised socialist country will require several decades of hard work say 50 years of the entire second half of the present century. Our task requires us to handle the relations among the people well, particularly those between the working class and peasantry. It requires us to handle the relations among our different nationalities well, and at the same time it requires us to do a good job in furthering close cooperation with the Soviet Union, which is a great and advanced socialist country and with the people's democracies, and to also promote cooperation with all the peace-loving countries and people in the capitalist world. That was our producer, Matthew Cook, reading a segment from Mao's opening speech at the National Conference of the Communist Party in 1955. So then Mao Zedong comes along with his mm. revolutionaries um, mm. and promising to to eliminate inequalities and promote self-reliance, develop China into a modern industrialist state. Um, he had a series of five-year plans, which seemed to be very popular after the war. Everyone seemed to have a series of five-year plans going. Um, what, what were his plans, and did, did he succeed at all? 
Well, his plans, um, yes, I think he did. I have to be sympathetic here. Um, the plans, as in India or in Russia, they tend to begin with an emphasis on heavy industry and getting things going, you know, the big stuff, the big sexy Western technologies and so on. That's what they want. And so you get imports through Russia, uh, first of all. China, of course, is allied to Russia until 1952 when... when um, when Stalin, 1953, when Stalin dies, in that period and slightly beyond, Russia and China are closely involved. And Russia, sorry, China is in recipient of Russian technology, heavy technologies. So the emphasis is on, like in Russia, the heavy five-year plans, steel, iron, transport systems. But with China, a much greater emphasis on communes as well. So this was going to take place alongside communization of agriculture, which meant really um, that there would be no sales or, or notion of private land. There would be no notion of private formation of prices or wages they would be set. And those and people would work in, in large rural communes. But don't forget, these communes are not tiny little farms. They're not like 1960s hippie communes. These are these have got maybe 20,000 people in them, a particular common commune might have, or more, the size of small cities or, or cities. And so the idea was that in those, especially by the, the, the later plans, the idea was that you could nurture also agriculture and the lighter industries and employ people more in, in smaller scale industries within these communes. So as Maoism goes on, depending on which phase we're talking about, you know, obviously it went through the Great Leap Forward and it went through the Cultural Revolution, all of which alter things. Um, the, the planning sort of liberalized. They realized that you couldn't just um, get your bread and your, your beer, as it were, from, from iron and steel. You had to actually you know, produce consumer goods. And if you want to produce consumer goods and have people purchasing them, you needed the farmers to release their food into these cities. Farmers aren't going to sell to cities if they can't buy back from cities some industrial goods that are useful to them, like boots and shoes and clothes and things. So this was the trap that um, occurred in, in most third world countries, to be honest, but particularly in, in in Russia and and, and um, China, because I think of the stringency of communism. Okay, so I think. But plan- what I'm finding Sorry. interesting um, from what you're describing mm. is that it's an economy that relies, uh, you know, a lot on trade and a lot of industrialization. How was he? You know, these seems like seem like very capitalist uh, structures and values. Well, yeah. How was he combining the ideology of communism with these? You know, they seem quite quite capitalist uh, five year yeah, plans. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, I think that if you look at the period of the plans up until his death, then um, the country's running, um, sorry, changing from an agricultural society to an industrial one, literally. In in 1949, uh, about 50% or more of the whole population was working in agriculture, okay? By about the time of his death and maybe a little bit beyond, something like half of that, maybe 26, 27 percent were working in in agriculture. So clearly people had moved over to industry. This, of course, is associated with a form of Marxist communism in the sense that you need a proletariat and you need an industrial workforce for a Marxist form of communism to come through. Mao was actually more complicated than the Russians in the sense that he was saying, we want that, but we also want to protect the rural worker because he he had depended on the rural worker. He depended on what he called uh, frontier economics back in the 1930s and 40s when he was fighting the nationalists. You know, he'd lived up in the caves and he'd been a, he'd been a real guerrilla war, war, war warrior himself. And he knew that you needed supplies of food, you needed all this going. So he never abandoned uh, the peasant, even though his policies may have been ridiculous in certain situations. Under the Great Leap Forward, for instance, of 58, 59, he destroyed much of what he tried to create. And again, in the Cultural Revolution, everything went far too far in an attempt to develop you know, the rural areas at the expense of urbanism. So he swayed backwards and forwards. And he was no economist. 
<laughs> I mean, Martin Thurman was no economist, but he did have these sort of basic ideas of trying to, first of all, get infrastructure going and then try and get some sort of welfare within agriculture and the commune going. And he died, of course, before we saw it all. But what I would say to be in being sympathetic to Mao, just for one moment, is to say that he laid down an infrastructure. He laid down a series of roadway systems and you know, railways and all the basics that wouldn't have been there without him under the warlords, under the old nationalists. They wouldn't have been there. So that by the time he died and a bit more liberalism could come in, the infrastructure was, was there. You know, there was an infrastructure to build on. And so Deng Xiaoping and, and the other followers of, of Mao later um, could have an infrastructure. And, and the proof of the pudding of Maoism is not in the years of the 60s and 70s. The proof of the pudding is in the 80s after he's gone. That's when you start to see the growth coming through. Well, interestingly for me, uh, Professor Carl Riskin of Columbia Uni yes. University, he writes that uh, China in the 1970s was one of the more world's most egalitarian countries, and today it's certainly one of the most unequal of the developing yeah. countries in Asia. I guess we wouldn't call it mm. developing so much anymore. Yeah. Um, so what happened between the 70s and 80s to, yeah. to sort I of think, break? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's part of a much bigger thing, though. Um, Riskin's brilliant, of course, and um, he, may be, he may be right, but the figures for what the distribution of income was and and inequality between particularly country and city are very dubious. You know, the, the World Bank sort of rejected them for years and so on. And we don't really know. The further back you go, the more dodgy the figures get, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, the censuses and so on were, were all completely falsified and we just don't know. But it would appear that um, the function of communism, after all, is to try and create income and equality at the same time. And that was the notion of a commune. So as people went into communes and so on, it may well be that within the rural areas and in the hinterland, you know, in the center of the country and so on, there was, more, um, there, there was some more equality building in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. I think it's very difficult to measure because we don't have prices. This is a communist society, so measuring equality is difficult. You see my point, Rita? You know, it, normally we would measure equality in terms of income, which sure. depends on some sort of measure of prices, which depends on something like markets, yeah? But when prices and other things like this are fixed, then we've got very little to go on. But let's assume it's, it's even correct. Then I think what's happening is that in the 80s, after Mao's gone, um, you're getting... Um, you're getting the forces of growth starting to come in. You're getting the full modernizations under Deng. Um, you've got a more liberal system. Well, in the 1970s, Japan, uh, sorry, China starts to import far more technology from uh, Japan. In 76, 78, in that sort of period, large amounts of Western technology are coming into to China from Japan. So this means that in the, um, the rural areas, sorry, in the, in the coastal areas, in the areas of development around Beijing, along the southeast, around towards Hong Kong and Taiwan, all those areas, you're starting to get fast growth, um, higher industrial wages, more employment, more employment through the year rather than that unemployment or underemployment we're talking about earlier. And this all gives rise to greater inequality. So you're getting much more growth um, with, less, with, with less equality. This is not surprising. You find it in almost all systems that start to grow more, more effectively. Um, certainly the whole of Western tradition for the last 200 years is that economic growth comes with, with increasing inequality. Now, you, you might say, well, communism, you don't expect that. But um, they're trying to do everything at once in a very big system. And the basic force at work, I think, is the difference, not so much amongst workers, say, on farms, but amongst uh, between workers and people in the rural areas that are being sort of left behind in the 1980s and the um, faster growing areas um, of the 1980s around the coast. And this is, of course, the background to Tiananmen Square in 1989.
you know, it's, I mean, in some ways, in 1989, the Tiananmen Square um, uh, student movement and, and, and disaster was sort of seen as a surprise. In the 1980s, China's doing quite well. Well, it's exactly for what I've just said. It is doing well. It's growing faster than ever before, probably, uh, almost certainly. But it's also creating inflation. It's creating income maldistribution, and in particular, just, um, problems between the regions um, in terms of inequalities, you know, between the, the, the coast and the, the rest. So Tiananmen Square becomes a great symbol of, of um, growth without total development. You know, you're getting the growth, you're getting change, um, you're getting results. Deng is smiling in that sense. He's quite happy. But at the, at the age of 84, you know, Deng finds himself with a, a limited little revolution on his hands in the middle of Peking, Beijing now. And um, that, that frightens him and he overreacts. So let's take a little step back here. Um, so mm. originally, China was following the Soviet model of large-scale industrialization. Yeah, we talked yeah. about that. Um, but you mentioned the Great Leap Forward, and um, mm. there was a great push there to drive industrialization quickly between 1958 That's and right. 1961. Mm. And the rural communes that had been so important to feed, to feed this enormous country yep. were suddenly um, encouraged to produce steel and iron and, and started to neglect agricultural production. And mm. there was a huge widespread famine, not very discussed anymore. Well, millions and millions of deaths. You know, so what what happens there? Why why did he start to get things so wrong? I think that after Stalin had died and the relationship between Russia and China sort of broke away in 1953-54, I think there was some panic going on. If you look again at the figures, I'm sorry to be bored, but if you look at this, even the World Bank sort of figures, um, the 1950s do show a growth in income, a GMP, you know, measured just simply crudely by GMP. The, the economy is growing. But the Great Leap Forward sort of cuts across that in 58, 59 with the panic of the, 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 the country is not feeding the city. It's, it's sometimes in Russia, it was always called the scissors crisis, that, that, that the prices had deviated, that um, you could get hold of food quite easily, quite cheaply, but industrial goods, industrial consumer goods were expensive. Under those situations, farmers just didn't, even in communes, did not want to release food. So any surpluses that were being produced by the communes that could have been sold in the marketplace were sort of being held back because a farmer would say, well, I've, I've, I've fulfilled my quota in the commune. I've got my money for that. Um, why should I sell the extra money, uh, the extra product I've got into cities when, I'm, when I can only get, you know, for, for half a field of, of corn, of rice or something, I'm getting, you know, a couple of shoes or something in exchange mm. from the city. You know, that, 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 that's, that's not going to happen. So what they do is they're, cha- they're trading within the rural areas or they're eating more or they're burying their cows that, uh, and killing them and storing them for meat later or whatever it might be. We'll never know the, the, the total truth. But you're right. There is a, a food. The food shortage is not coming so much from the inability of China to produce food. It's the inability of China to market food into cities and towns and so on. And that's where I think the famine is, is, is originating. And, and the trouble about that is that that great leap forward, which, then, which therefore fails with those early plans and this overemphasis on industry, is then, of course, by Mao, he then panics again. And in 1961, he brings in the Cultural Revolution as a way of ameliorating that, supposedly, by bringing the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army, um, all the forces of communism, which are huge, into the countryside, um, getting the intellectuals to work on farms, you know, shooting people and so on, all this sort of thing that he hopes will somehow transfer resources more into the, onto the farm and get the food production going. And again, and that fails, could, though. Yeah, it does fail, but he does, he does set up, again, Riskin and others have shown that um, he, does, he does set up um, in that period 
some sort of good things, you do start finding what we call intermediate technologies, things like small cement factories and small iron producers and, and pottery and so on, setting up in communes where you breach the gap between the rural sort of low income and the slightly better incomes in commerce and industrial production. So the idea is instead of trading across the country geographically, you can do the, the agriculture industry, agricultural manufacture swap, as it were, exchange within communes. You see the idea? So the commune becomes a much more mixed thing. And to some extent, that was, that was starting to happen in the Cultural Revolution. Um, but the, the problem is he unleashed, in, in setting that up, he unleashed an ideology um, that was vicious and what I would call right-wing. You know, I mean, it's, it's fascist, it's fascistic communism, if you like. And when he dies, you see the proof of the pudding with the, with the Gang of Four. You know, once he dies, the immediate reaction is a Gang of Four led by his wife um, to try and bring China back to, to that heavy um, communism at the beginning, which would have made things even more disastrous. And lucky that battle was lost to, to Deng, who, who won the battle of the four modernizations. And so the four modernizations put forth in... Welcome back to the History of Booms, Busts, and Bubbles. I am Rita Lobo, and my guest today is Professor Ian Inkster from SOAS and Nottingham Trent University. And we are talking about Chairman Mao's economic legacy. People say that we have become isolated from the masses, yet the masses still support us. There is a bit of petit bourgeois fanaticism, but not all that much. I agree with the view of our comrades. The problem is that of the commune movement. It's nothing else but wanting to do a bit more, a bit faster. Is this analysis appropriate? In these three months, there were three times 300,000 people going to the mountains to burn incense. We must not pour cold water on this kind of broad mass movement. We can only use persuasion and say to them, comrades, your hearts are in the right place. When tasks are difficult, don't be impatient. Do things step by step. When you eat meat, you have to do it one mouthful at a time. One bite won't make you a fatty. Lin eats a catty of meat a day, and he's still not fat, even after 10 years of it. The ample figures of the commander-in-chief and myself were not achieved in a day and a night. That was our producer, Matthew Cook, again reading a segment of Chairman Mao's speech at the Lushan Conference in 1959, discussing the Great Leap Forward. Yeah, Deng Xiaoping takes over in 1978, mm. and there's another mm. fundamental chain in China's economic mm. policy. So what happens mm. there? Well, what Deng says is um, he basically is thinking that, that, first of all, he was a man of Mao, but he'd been given a very hard time by Mao Zedong towards the end of the, the period. And in particular, after he died, after Mao died, Deng was in a really bad uh, state with the, um, with the Gang of Four. And he was sort of on, on, a, on, a, on a very loose uh, limb. But by 1978, with the, with the activities of the Gang of Force clearly anarchic and getting nowhere, he institutes the Four Modernization, which, and, and as its name suggests, it's saying, look, what we want to do is try to have a Western 
style of industrial change in which the emphasis is not just on agriculture or industry, but on both, and with far more attention to national defense, which of course is itself a, a growth process, and science and technology. National defense will employ more people and so on and so forth. So you want to modernize the national defense system, emphasize science and technology much more, etc. And as I said to you earlier, this is precisely the period in which Japanese technology and so on is going to come in to China. So this is what happens, and we see massive contracts being signed by the middle of the 70s anyway, um, and through into the late 70s with foreign firms. Um, in, the, in the early period, about 76, 78, just after Mao Zedong dies, and just as the formal organizations is coming in, in that short three-year period, something like 90% of all the foreign firms signing contracts with Chinese firms and Chinese government are Japanese. The actual figure is 88%, but that's probably spurious accuracy, you know, a huge number. So you're starting to get a more um, alternative, appropriate technology coming in, smaller scale. Um, you're getting a much more pragmatic approach. You know, Deng is very famous for saying, you know, it doesn't matter what the color of the cat was as long as it, it catches mice. So it doesn't matter whether it's communism, uh, the white cat maybe, or capitalism, the black cat maybe. Yeah, well, I think the, the good luck for him was, first of all, that Mao was gone. Um, that the the extremists had been discredited, and so he. I'm not saying he had a free hand, but he had a position where he could say, "Well, here is Western technology from Japan and, and so on. It is available to us. We invest more in R&D. Um, we're in a situation now where we can free ourselves from um, the old the older world, not from Maoism itself." Uh, he was a Maoist to the, to the last. I mean, he believed in the communist system and he believed in China as a, as a great system. But he was quite quick to see that you needed new institutions and so on. And in 1982, under, under Deng, of course, they, they, they brought in the new Chinese constitution. And in, within the new con Chinese constitution, there was a proclamation of openness. They actually said, you know, the system will be, the economy in particular, of course, they mean rather than the, the polity, uh, will be more opened up to foreign influence and we will use the coastal areas. And so in 1980, indeed, they brought in the special economic zones in the first special cities that would be more free and more liberal. And of course, uh, Deng Xiaoping's legacy lives on till today. This is more the system that we see in China oh, than, yeah. than, than the vision that Mao had in, in, in the 50s. Mm. Another enduring trend, and I think this seems to date back to Mao, is this uh, huge investment in infrastructure in order to, to push mm. forward growth. Is that a legacy for Mao's investment think, in infrastructure? Yeah I, yeah, I do. I think that one of the legacies, I mean, there's two major legacies from Mao. One is infrastructure and the other is population and demography and the one-child policy and all that sort of stuff. I think that they're the two things that stretch from the 60s, 70s into the present uh, time. I think the other thing that's going on in China with infrastructure, though, is there's been a, um, a great uh, attention under Mao and right through to the present time on local government. You, you know, people don't realize that most government expenditure in China today is not by the central government, it's by local government, far more than any capitalist country I know of. And they, again, tend to want to assert themselves, don't they, in terms of roadway systems, new, you know, new, new housing developments. I guess and, that's and stuff that, that can be very easily measured as well. So uh, exactly. you can measure progress got, by yeah, how many kilometers right. of roads you've built. Yeah, exactly. So now that's exactly my point. They're like monuments. They're just like statues, mm. aren't they? A road. It's like a big mm. statue to you. But the, but the repercussion of that can be quite good because it means that the smaller firms, the medium firms, the ones trying to set up contracts, maybe as sub-suppliers to a Western firm or a larger Chinese firm, these people now have better transport systems. They can use those transport systems just like the big firms can. Um, and so their externalities, if you like, their external costs are, are being reduced. So this is a, in many ways a good thing for development. So whilst um, you create famine and pressure and a lack of consumer goods, say, under Mao, even under late Mao, um, 
in the longer run, for the next generation, this may act as the, uh, the infrastructure for development. You know, clothes and boots disappear, but the roadway system remains. I guess that's a much bigger discussion as well. So yeah, without, without going into the, the cultural heritage of, mm. of Maoist mm. China, um, mm. economically, what was Mao's biggest legacy to the country? The movement away from the Russian model was important. Because he was seeing the Russian model, he was very skeptical towards the Russian model, much more attention to rural areas than the Russians. And so when it seemed to me that when the Russian system collapsed in 89, um, it was not likely that China would follow the same path. And that was a good thing for the world, because mm. if the Chinese had followed the same path as the Russians, um, at, you know, during the collapse of Russian communism, if Chinese communism had, uh, disappeared in the same way, then the world system would have been under real threat. And of course, and China that, remains today a major driving force, not just for the re- for the industry, but for the entire world in terms of you know consumption absolutely. of, of um, absolutely you know yeah, everything, yeah. commodities, uh, pro- oh, yeah. you know, goods and and services and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if you take the period before the recession in, in 2006, then there's no doubt that China was important. You know, the, the, the Nixon shock onwards, China's growing in this part of the world system. But after that, 2006, it's essential. If, 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 if the growth rate of China had fallen to 2 or 3 percent back in, in 2007, 8, 9, 10, right through to the present, then the world system would be, uh, I mean, much more threatened than it, than it was than, and, and then the, that it is. Uh, the, the, the continuation of high growth uh, in China meant that there was a big su- uh, sucking in of consumer goods. There was a big pushing out of cheap uh, manufactured consumer goods into places like America, which meant that um, the American worker could get products much cheaper than he would have done if he depended on American manufacturers. I can tell you that. So it meant he could live much better under American salaries um, than he could otherwise do. And it meant that inflation was kept down in America. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that this is true. I think that these low-cost Chinese goods, although the Americans see it as a threat, from the social point of view in America, it wasn't such a bad thing. Mm, Absolutely. Mm. Professor Ian Inkster, thank you so much for talking with me. So there we have it. One of the most controversial figures in China's modern history, Chairman Mao Zedong, remains one of the most influential. Thank you for listening. I am Rita Lobo. My guest today has been Professor Ian Inkster from SOAS. Thank you for joining me, Professor, and I'll see you again next week.